invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We'll study chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 6. Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14, through chapter 4, verse 6. This is a letter of the Apostle Paul to a church that he loved, to a church that was planted by his initial efforts, most likely, that was pastored by a disciple of his named Timothy, it was a church that he had sincere, deep, real, long, and lasting relationships with, so much so the Apostle Paul would even write specific letters that are recorded in the book of Acts to their elders. And as he writes this section, or really the whole letter, uh, he's a prisoner in chains. He's separate from them physically, but nonetheless he is shepherding them and instructing them spiritually. So let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to be to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, but sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word, how it is always in season. Lord, we ask that this morning as we study your word together, that you would encourage all of us that you would minister to this church. Father, that you would pour out blessings upon us. 
that, Lord, you would help us to be a people in one body together. Oh, Lord, build us up in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Even when Christians are physically separated, they are never spiritually separated from one another. No matter if the conversations and the encouragements were previously had over cups of coffee and in living rooms, the encouragement and conversations of God's people may always and still be had as we go to the Lord on our knees in prayer for one another. And that is something that is on the Apostle's heart as he writes to the people that he loves in Ephesus. To this church that's in a difficult city, a city known for gross immorality and paganism, and a church that has been one touched by suffering and hardship and persecution, just as the Apostle Paul, its first church planter, was. And here as he writes to them, he writes for their encouragement, and he writes as a man in chains at some distance from them, possibly in his imprisonment in Jerusalem or throughout other portions of the Roman Empire, even possibly in the city of Ephesus itself. And when he writes to them, he expresses to them a prayer that he has for them. In verses 3, or chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, then he expresses a doxology or a praise to God. In chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he gives to them a charge. A charge to live to one another as the Christians that God has called them to be. A prayer, a doxology, and a charge. Whenever I was considering how I would say goodbye to our church to you, to my church. It was very difficult, as you may imagine. Even your elders would say, they asked me several times, what are you going to preach on? What are you going to preach on? And I would say, I'm not really sure yet. But this is a passage of scripture that the Lord used to help me over the past number of weeks. And I do believe that it is in perfect season for the help of each you as our congregation, as the people I've been blessed to pray for for four years. And I also want to encourage you to know that this is not a unique thing, that pastoral transitions, separation one from another, leaders from members of a church or members of a church from one another, this is as ordinary in the life of the church as it could be. This is simply something that the church has always experienced and it is something that we are not a people unaware of or unprepared for by the Bible's own instructions. And so as we come to chapter 3 in verse 1, Paul tells us very clearly that he's a prisoner. He doesn't elaborate about that. Paul has been a prisoner many times in the Bible and he tells us about a variety of sufferings that he's endured as a prisoner. Nonetheless, let me say this, what I think is very obvious, that when Paul is in prison, it is for teaching the gospel. He is separated 
from the church in prison because he's preaching Jesus. That's clear. He's not a man that didn't pay those whom he owed a debt. He's not a man that took a thing that didn't belong to him. No, he's a martyr in his chains. And so as he writes to them and reminds them again in chapter 4, verse 1, he is writing as a man at a distance. But again, I want to tell you that he's writing to his friends. And he's writing for their encouragement and for their well-keeping. And here in verse 14, he immediately breaks into this wonderful testimony of his own spiritual life. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's saying, I'm praying. And you may ask the question, what's the reason? Look back just one verse. And you have the answer. He's concerned for them in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What's the reason for the prayer that we're introduced to in verses 14 through 19? It is because he is concerned that the hearts of the church in Ephesus would be overwhelmed with sorrow. That they would be so upset, that they would be so disturbed at the loss of their leader, the Apostle Paul, that they would have their hands fall from the work of evangelism, or even that their faith would be put into question. It is his concern for them and their souls. That's why he's praying. Not only that, but whenever he describes his prayer, he does it in wonderful detail, but I will say this, maybe it's a little different than what the prayers of very many Christians may be today. First off, he's specific. He tells them that he's praying to the Father. He's praying in verse 16 that he may grant you, the church, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Again, he wants the church kept and the church strong. He wants the church consoled and the church equipped. He wants the church to remain as the church a people who have the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But there are three things, very specifically, uh, that are the ends of his prayer or the things that he is pleading with the Lord specifically for that come by the strengthening of the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the church. And the first of them is this. So that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. I want you Christians to know the Lord Jesus Christ and your strength or your faith be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want you for one second, church, to have faith that wavers or is concerned or is afraid or is failing. But I want the church to be strong in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what his prayer is. Lord God, pour out your spirit upon the church that in their hearts they might not be overwhelmed with sorrow. That their knees won't buckle, that they won't lose heart, but that they'll stand firm in the embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing specifically that he is praying that the Lord will do in the hearts of the church there in Ephesus. But 
the second thing, the second strengthening that the Holy Spirit would do, he prays for, is that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they may have strength to grasp or comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. God, pour out your Holy Spirit into their hearts that they may be strengthened so that spiritually they will search out the expanse of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you caught it as we read the text just a second ago that Paul says his prayer is that the Holy Spirit will help the church in love to know the unknowable. Did you see that? Did you catch what he's saying there? To comprehend the love of Christ. To grasp, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What an incredible thing to say because what he is saying is he's saying, church, I want you to have your eyes fixed on Jesus and his heart for you. And I want you to be searching him out and I want you to think on the cross and I want God, the Holy Spirit, to strengthen you to do so that your mind is not distracted to the left or to the right about the things of this world, but that you are simply as a man or a woman staring into the sun, blinded by the magnificence and the brilliance of the love of Jesus Christ. So that just for a second, if you can just get an edge of it or a corner of it, or just touch it for a second, to know the texture of the garment of the testimony of His love, just for a second, Paul is saying, it's an inexhaustible love, a love that knows no end, that knows no height, no depth. No length, no breadth. It's something so much more than can be held in your hands. And he's saying, for the church, this is what I want for you. And I'm pleading with the Father that he will give it to you. So that you will be a person strong in faith and completely captivated by the love of Jesus Christ to you. That's the second He's praying for the church as he's in chains. But the third thing is that they might be filled with the fullness of God. That they might be filled with the fullness of God. One of the themes of the book of Ephesians, and uh, really this section of uh, chapter 3, is the temple. And one of the things you may be familiar with if you've studied the Old Testament is that the temple is not just a place of worship. It's not just a place of sacrifices, but it is a place of the divine presence of God. Specifically, the place where the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells. He's said to shakan or hover in the Holy of Holies over the mercy seat as God is with his people. And in the back of Paul's mind and in his heart, what is he saying? He's saying, church, I may be in jail and in chains and at a great distance from you. All I've been is your pastor, but the thing I want for you is that you be strengthened in faith, overwhelmed by the love of Christ, 
and for you to feel the companionship of your God that never leaves you. His constant presence, the wonderful testimony and care and the comfort that he gives, the fullness of God in the Christian life is a testimony simply like this. I will never abandon you nor forsake you. That's the testimony that Paul is pleading with God that the Holy Spirit will press to the hearts of the church in Ephesus. You say, well, those sound wonderful. They sound spiritual. Pastor, I know that you're pointing it out, but I want you to notice the weight of this prayer. And you need to consider it in contrast with the context black and white. You need to have a sense of it. Where's Paul? He's in chains. Where's this church? Well, they're in a wicked society in an ungodly town. They are persecuted and they are cursed by their neighbors. And what is Paul praying? He's praying for the spiritual blessing of God for them. What's absent sets the tone for his priority. It's not the question and not the prayer. Oh God, although these are good prayers, he doesn't say, Lord, give the church success. God, give the church growth. He doesn't say, God, defend them from heresy, though it's still a very good thing. He doesn't say, God, defend them from harm. God, give them strength to free me from my chains. God, give them a voice as an advocate or a defender of the truth of the Christian religion. No, none of that is his heart for them. Rather, his heart is for their souls and they're standing before their God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in their inner being, strengthen them in the faith, O oh Lord. Give them a grasp, just a grasp of how much Jesus loves them and gave himself for them and is risen and ascended and mediates for them even now. Just, just a little of it, Lord, just give that to them. people who consider themselves orphans and abandoned. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. The spiritual well-being of the souls of those who are united together as a church. And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for you. It's a good prayer to pray for your interim. It's a good prayer to pray for your elders. It's a good prayer to pray for your deacons and your coming pastor in Mr. Dylan Halter. It's a good prayer to pray for all of these things. It's a good prayer to pray for your defense and for the well-being of your family. But the thing is, is that you need to be in the hands of your God. It's Him and His work, His work in you. That's the only reason you're together, even as it is. It's not because of me or any minister. It is only because of the Lord. That's the prayer that's worth having. And that's what you need to hear. You don't need any work of any man unless the Lord is pleased to use it. You need the Lord and his mercy poured out upon you. What a magnificent encouragement that ought to be, church. Because we don't have a God who is unable, nor do we have a God unwilling. In verse 20, as we continue in this passage, Paul breaks into 
a doxology. And I wrestled in my own heart, doxology or benediction, because this is a prayer and then he just breaks forth, but I think it's more properly a doxology. A doxology is a praise, a benediction, is a pronouncement of blessing. And I'll say that this praise is just completely intermixed with the blessing of God. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How can he say this prayer? How can he do this sort of thing? Well, he shows us in this doxology, his praise tells us not only that he believes in a great God, but specifically that he knows his God to be a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Again, it's Paul inviting us to consider the character of the eternal God and to know him and to receive strength from whom he has demonstrated himself to be in scripture and in history and in providence and creation, a great God of mercy and a God who is personal and loving and a God who pours out grace to sinners. He is him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Paul is saying, don't you understand, Christian? We can praise him in this way. Why? Because while we might ask for things we can't dream of being able to receive, he is able to do more than we can even comprehend. It's the surpassing greatness of God. It's the love of God that did not withhold His only begotten Son, but gave Him freely for people who were rebellious. Who stood at odds with God and cursed God and lived in lives that did not honor Him nor obey His statutes. Yet nonetheless, while we were yet sinners, He gave the righteous to die for the unrighteous. The Son for people who were wayward and in every way enemies of God. The love of God that can't be traced out, that is overwhelmingly magnificent. Paul's saying, I'm convinced of this in my God. It's so I can praise Him in the way in which He does here in verses 20 and 21. As he considers the power of the power of a God who can, in every circumstance, give new life to dead bodies. A God who, even in the beginning, spoke us into creation by forming us out of lifeless dust. The same God who raised the daughter of Jairus and the one who, in flesh, stood at the grave of Lazarus with tears in his eyes and weeping with his sisters. I can praise this God and I can know these things and pray these things because I know that this is who we have. This is our God, a God whose power is illimitable. We have a God who can be gracious to sinners, even sinners that would deny Christ, even sinners who knew Christ 
better than almost anybody else and would deny him three times, even the grace of God can restore, renew, reestablish, and sanctify a man like Peter for ministry. That's why he can praise a God like this, and that's why he can request this spiritual ministry of his God to the church in Ephesus. In light of all this about his God and who he knows him to be, that Paul can simply say, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. To him, to him be the glory. It's not the keeping of the church that Paul has done, it's not the suffering that Paul has undergone, it's not the chains that Paul has on his hands. It's not a cross that Paul will bear. No, it's the glory of God in heaven who gave his son. It's his glory, his work, his keeping. He alone is the good shepherd. Even if he gives under shepherds, they are sustained by his grace. And it's his glory and his glory alone that will be the keeping of the church for all generations, forever and ever. Pastor, where are you going with this? Because it echoes in my ears and in my soul that none of this labor has been by me and none of this labor has been dependent upon me and none of it will ever be dependent on me or any laborer in this pulpit but on the God of heaven. Should he intend to speak, the word will be opened and a tongue will be loosed even if it is from someone that has no clue of anything and he will have his will be done in this church. None of you were convinced by any word of any minister. But given new hearts by a living God who causes stones to become flesh. And so you should hear what I believe God has pressed on my heart. It never has ever depended upon me and it does it now. And in the moment when I leave, he will sustain because he always has because it's his glory it's not mine, and it's no man's, and it's not yours, but it's Christ's glory. And he will glorify his son in the church. And he will be known by his people. And his people will praise him. A doxology. But then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, there's a charge. I looked at the passage of Scripture and I thought to myself, wow, you know, each of these sections really should be its own sermon, but that's not how Paul gave it. Paul gave it in quick succession with therefores and with no transition beyond that. And there, here we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, a charge he gives to this church. And Paul reminds them of who he is and where he is. It's an interesting thing. I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, as if it's his office to be a martyr, or it's his role as a sufferer to say to the church these words to grip hearts and to call to action. That's what the charge is. And he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Urge you to walk in a manner 
calling to which you've been called. Take just a minute and let that sink on your mind and let that sit. Just think on what he's saying. He's calling each of you and each of us as Christians in the church in Ephesus to get on their feet and to get about being the people that God has called them to be. He says, walk in a manner worthy of this. Be a person that ought to be striving for what Christ has given of himself. What is he talking about? This calling comes through what? The power of the Holy Spirit pouring out the grace of the blood of Jesus. He's saying, you as a Christian, don't be a person that continues to wallow in unrighteousness and ungodliness, but be someone who strives after the Lord Jesus Christ. So that a person would simply say, if they've been called by God, it ought to make some sense, and there's some evidence of progress in grace. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we hear that and we think, well, okay, well, that means I need to evangelize someone. That means I need to go and do better with the giving of my money. That means I need to go feed the homeless. That means I need to go on mission trips. I need to get active. Is that what it means, Pastor? Is that what Paul's intending for the church there? And I'll say all of those things are fine and they're good, but those are derivative. They come from a heart that is already walking after the Lord. No, what Paul has in mind here is us being the Christians God called us to be to one another. Do you see it? This isn't a charge to evangelistic mission. This is a call and a charge to us as a church and the church in Ephesus to be together as a people and as a church and a congregation. That's what he has in mind. In verse 2, he tells you what it means to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. And you see, he has order to this. Because there's this problem within every church you've ever been in, and it's present in this church. I've said it in the past weeks, so I'll say it once more. The church is a group of covenanted, redeemed sinners. The issue isn't that you're covenanted or redeemed, but that there remains sin in the flesh. Whether two sinners are married together, or they join together in the relationship of the church covenant. Nonetheless, when you meet face to face, the sin comes out and the people are affected by sin. And so often I hear people say, well, I went to that church and you know what? All those people are terrible. Well, yes. That's something to be expected. This isn't a perfect society, although we expect it in the day of glory. It will be, but it hasn't come yet. The hard consequence of the church and the difficulty of relationships within the church is that we're sinners. And I think that's kind of the groundwork of why you need to meet with one another.
another face to face in humility. To simply know I struggle with sin and if I do as a Christian, then I also know that my brother does and my sister does. And in this disagreement, that's the thing that's between us. That's the thing that divides us is that he struggles with sin and I struggle with sin and she does and I do. And this is the hardship of what we're doing. We're meeting as people who have received grace, but grace so well needed. How can you have humility? Because you were given a grace that you did not deserve, a favor that you could never have earned, just like every single other of the Christians and the children of God. Humility sounds easy, but it's never easy because we have a sinful heart, and so we ought to be people who study and try and strive after humility so that we can be gentle. If you don't have humility, you certainly won't have gentleness. You also won't patiently bear with one another. Do you hear the language? He might have said already, well, Pastor, I don't know if he's really talking about sin. I promise, I don't have to use the language of bearing with you or you bearing with me if it isn't the hardship of my sin and your sin. Bearing one another's burden, carrying you on the back, dealing with the weight of it or the sorrow of it. Whether it's the effect of sin and disease in the body or, or tragedy in life or the effect of sin and the moral disagreement of the children of God. It doesn't matter. Paul says, live as those worthy of the calling to which you have been called in humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love. I'm going to tell you right now, as I've already said, as we ordained and installed officers. It's hard to love the church in a way. Because we hold our sin out to each other. That, in a healthy church, that happens. You know that. Sin's ugly and it's not lovable. And it's not lovely. But we're not alone with that sin in our hands. We are a people who have a crucified Savior. Who saw that sin punished even to death in his own flesh upon the tree. We're a people who have received an alien love that we don't deserve. And we ought to be a people who freely offer that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Very specifically. Without qualification. Just as you have been given also should you give. Never withholding love from the brother or sister in Christ. But giving it. Freely, so that there's not a hostile wall of division between you and the other. Because Jesus tore that wall of hostility. The division has been done away with. In humility, gentleness, and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. An eagerness heart to pursue, as we would say in our vows, the peace and the purity of the church. Not the peace or the purity, but the peace and the purity of the church. That ought to be something we strive for. And I'll tell you this, church, if you don't strive for it, you will not have it. If you don't strive for unity, you don't constantly insist in yourself as a child of God to be forgiving and loving and gracious in this church. You will not have it. You'll have three different churches. Or you'll 
find a way to say simply, this church is too much, it's too much for me, these people are too harsh, too bad, and I'm gone. I'm going somewhere else. I want to find a greener pasture. I want to tell you that pasture doesn't exist. And secondly, here you're called to be eager to strive for, to walk worthy of the calling. The charge of that church. In verse 4, the apostle gives us these wonderful truths that ought to strengthen us for the keeping of this charge. He says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'm confronted with the fact that whenever I came to this church so many years ago, I was coming to the most diverse church I'd ever even set foot in. How many nations are represented in this church? How many ages are represented in this church? How many professions are represented in this church? How many places where you all live in an hour around the entire metropolitan of Stuttgart? are represented in this church. There is so much diversity here. There's so many spiritual backgrounds. Atheism, Catholicism, weak evangelicalism, liberal Christianity, strong Christianity, house churches, all sorts of things, all kinds of things in this church. So much diversity that whenever I came, I thought to myself, how is this even possible? It seemed to me whenever I stepped into the pulpit of the church that there were at least one, maybe two Presbyterians in the church. It might have been just me and my wife. How can we be one people? How can we be together? How's this going to work? It's because of what Paul says here. It's this wonderful truth. There is one body, one church, one church, not ten. There's not a German church and an English-speaking church. There's not an international church and an American church. There's not, there's not all these different churches. There's one church, one church, Covenant Fellowship Church. There's one spirit that indwells us all. There's one hope, and that is in the coming king, in the kingdom that will descend with him. There's one Lord who is seated upon the throne with crowns upon his head, and there is one faith, not fifteen. While we confess it with creeds, church, there is one baptism, although some have, by conscience, said they have different baptismal views. There is one baptism, church, because there is one God and Father over all. This is not a buffet, this is a body. This isn't a club. This is the people of God. We're called His family, His children. And He's given us the wonderful title of church, the Bride of Christ. I want to encourage you, church, to take the charge of the Apostle Paul because of these things. And in humility and gentleness, Bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Study this church.
Satan wants nothing more than for you not to do this. Christ is delighted in nothing more than that you are kept by the power of his spirit and the grace of his sacrifice for you. I charge you to it, church. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, there are none like you in the heavens above nor in the earth below. You alone are God and you are holy. And you have called us to be holy even as you are holy. Your creatures, O oh Lord, your image bearers, marred and broken and chipped. Oh Father, we pray for your mercy and your sustaining grace. Oh Lord, give us strength. Oh Lord, that we may do all the things of your words command. Oh Lord, that we may be secure in the blood of our Lord to one another as one church.